Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Calling Tau City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message It was a little harsh, you know It's still a little hard for me to hear Please take it slow Welcome to Starship Sofa Part of the District of Wonders network Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders Come and find yours I'm tuning in to your transmissions I'm waiting to be found And I'm building rockets This is the Starship Sober. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 680. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Two things in today's show. I'll tell you what's coming in. We have And You Shall Sing to Me a Deeper Song by Maria Haskins. That is our main fiction. And then we have our very own Amy H. Sturgis with Looking back at genre history. There you go, that's all coming in today's show. But first, let me just say, if you listened to my last ramble, the, I don't know, probably a couple, about a month ago, and I kind of, there was a little, I'm only going to talk about this a little bit, but <laughs> eat a bit of humble pie here. I wasn't too happy with Boba Fett. I wasn't, you know what I mean? I was a little bit disappointed with it. I had Scooter Kids, who actually were supposed to be mods, and mods from, like, you know, the UK, the kind of Northern Soul and all that. But it just, for me, didn't sit right. I've just hit my mic there, sorry. Didn't sit right in the kind of Star Wars universe. The very next episode, Mother Chucker. The one after that, my God. <laughs> the best thing that's happened in Star Like, two, ep- two episodes there that were as good as the original, the original Starship, so- Starship, so- sorry, Star Wars. Honestly, I just like... <laughs> Just, oh, I've got to, like, I'm just sitting down here to, just to see I was a little bit wrong about Boba Fett. Those, there was like, there's two episodes in there, and if you're kind of into that, this universe, you'll know which ones. I ain't seen anything 
as good as that since the original Starship Sova. And just like the technology now as well. Do you know what I mean? Man, just how that can... We don't need actors. <laughs> you know what I mean? Anyway, I'd just like to say like, I got that wrong. <laughs> so... I'll give you a heads up, the main fiction, Maria Haskins. Now, this story was first published in Interzone, fantastic magazine here, 280 in February 2019. And you shall sing to me a deeper song. Maria Haskins is a Swedish-Canadian writer and reviewer of speculative fiction. She currently lives just outside of Vancouver with her husband, two kids, a snake, several birds and a very large black dog. Her short story collection, Six Dreams About the Train, is out now from, is it Trepidido Publishing? I'm not sure there. Mariah's work has been appeared in The Best Horror of the Year, Volume 13, Strange Horizons, Black Static, Into Sown, Fireside, Beneath the Skies. There's some magazines there and some quality stuff there and elsewhere. And you can find out more about Maria at mariahaskins.com or you can follow her on Twitter. Now, this story is narrated by Summer Brooks. Yeah, Summer, hello. Summer Brooks is a story addict who watches too much television and she enjoys putting her encyclopedia science fiction geek knowledge to the test in discussions about sci-fi, horror and comics. She's been doing just that on Slice of Sci-Fi since 2005. <laughs> Summer man, you've started, like, say, started a year before me, and it's just. God, we're coming up in nearly 20 bloody year, man, doing this, this bloody game. Summer is and also an avid reader of sci fi, fantasy, and thrillers, with a handful of published credits to a name. Next on her agenda is writing an urban fantasy action adventure and a monster movie extravaganza. She also does narrations for Tales to Terrify and Escape Pod, amongst others, and has doing audiobooks in her sights. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. And you shall sing to me a deeper song by Maria Haskins. I hear the all-too-familiar blast of a bot gun as a bullet screams by my cheek, thwacking into the gravel between the railway ties behind me. Belem rears up, waving his clawed front feet in the air, and my brain snaps into battle mode. The sound of the weapon sings through the implants nestled beneath my skull, as the botgun specs are transmitted to my cortex. But no specs can tell me why a weapon that shouldn't exist is being fired at me in this hind end of the continent ten years after the bot war ended. Move, Nisha. Humming the beginnings of a countersong, I slide off Belem's back, grab my rifle from the saddle holster, and urge the scaly pig lizard into the thin shelter of a copse of stunted trees. Too many thoughts are spinning through my head that I'm getting lazy and complacent riding around without a rifle on my back, without a pistol up my sleeve. A bot gun can fire 20 rounds in 10 seconds, so why am I still alive? There's only one place an attacker could be hiding, considering the range of the weapon, that rocky outcropping on the slope above the tracks. Squinting in the sunlight, I see nothing but a whisper of dust up there. I focus on the data feed from my implants, searching 
for the murmur of a bot processor my song can grab a hold of, but I find no sounds of tech. What I find instead is the barely audible whisper of breaths and heartbeats. One human, one animal. Who are you? I shout, patting down the pockets of my leather jacket for ammo, gingerly sliding the pistol out of my saddlebag and into the holster hidden in my right sleeve. Why are you shooting at me? I'm still trying to steady my hands and the rush of memories brought on by the sound of that gun. Victor and I huddled in the trenches, the taste of blood and mud in my mouth, the mind-numbing hum of the bots before they dropped their bombs. Get a grip, Nisha. The war is over. I don't want to kill you. It's a man's voice. Name's Daniel. I'm coming out. Don't shoot. He stands up, raising a refitted bot gun over his head. The sleek, shiny weapon has been refashioned to fit a human hand, but seeing it still makes me flinch. For a while, nothing moves between us but the wind, stirring up whirls of dust. I speak first. Impressive weapon. Hard to find a bot to rip it off these days. He grins so unexpectedly that I almost grin back. War memento. Sorry for shooting at you. I saw the splice beast and figured you were central command. But your scars... He frowns. I thought all the singers were dead. I touched the bare skin on my skull. The hair didn't grow back everywhere after the surgery, and I know what it looks like. White scars on tan skin, tracking down my throat, around my ears, through the patchy mess of short gray-blonde hair. I used to wear a hood, but I've been traveling the wild so long it didn't seem to matter anymore. We are dead, I say. I just keep walking anyway. That earns me another grin, and I peer at him more closely. Short, muscular, brown-skinned. Dressed in blue coveralls, patched and mended. Farmer's clothes. Yet his stance, the way he speaks that weapon, everything about him says ex-military, likely a science trooper. He whistles and a shaggy pony emerges from the rocks, staring suspiciously at Belem. You get a lot of central command around here? He shakes his head. No, but there was a train the other day. Thought you might have been on it. His voice reminds me far too much of Victor's. Dark and warm like nighttime and song, like trust and safety like war and loss. Nope. Heard it pass, though. I think of it, rumbling through my uneasy sleep, like a distant nightmare. The train started rolling again a few years ago, but this is the first one to stop. We're keeping an eye on it. Looks like they're inspecting the trestle bridge, but you'd best change your route if you've got reasons to avoid central command. I wonder who we are, but I don't ask. Slinging the rifle onto my back, 
I mount up. Thanks for the warning. He looks me over. Your beast's limping. Was that from him rearing up just now? It's just a scratch. It'll heal. We've got a medic. Could stitch him up. Got a bed for the night, too. I realize you want to keep an eye on me because of that train, but you just shot at me. I apologized. What if I want to keep going? He swings the bot gun up on his shoulder and smiles, looking for all the world like one of Central Command's morale-boosting recruitment posters from the war. I know a singer isn't likely to be spying for Central Command, but it'd be safer for you and us if you stayed until the train leaves. I mull it over. It's been a while since I was reckless enough to trust anyone, but Daniel reminds me enough of Victor to make me consider it. Long as I can keep my rifle. Of course. If I can't trust a war hero, then who can I trust? The Priory. The first time I saw Mother Mary, she was standing in the pulpit at the Pacific Priory, looking immeasurably tall, cloaked in her red vestments. Every life sings, she intoned, gazing down on us, but your songs will save the world. I didn't know what she meant, but the way she said it, the way she looked at us, made me want to believe her. The orphanage had sold me to the Priory the week before. I was just what the Holy Sisters needed, the recruiter said. With my beautiful voice, my perfect pitch, my love for writing songs. Now I was hundreds of miles away, standing with sixty other teens from all over North Am, in a place that seemed untouched by the war against the bots, a place that smelled of ocean and incense, not fire and death. Victor stood beside me, though I didn't know his name yet. Only knew him as the dark-haired boy with the skin knuckles and a knack for rhymes. That morning, we had all been scrubbed clean in the bathhouse, and beneath the stained glass windows our faces shone, pink and tan, black and brown, shining. We sang for Mother Mary, and from where I stood... I could see her crying as she listened, her stoic features barely shifting as the tears fell. Afterward, she told us we were blessed and chosen, that we'd be tried and tested. She left out the details, that the sisters had discovered a new weapon against the bots, that the Priory was working with Central Command to build that weapon, despite the Holy Order's distaste for worldly powers, that we would become that weapon. That Tex would soon cut us open, fusing neural implants to our flayed nerves, our inner ears, our larynxes, reshaping our young, malleable brains. And there I was, singing like an angel, fool enough to think that I might be there to write songs of peace and glory. God might be everywhere, as the sisters claimed, but the devil, as always, was in those details.
We've been riding through the foothills for less than an hour when I see a village. Two dozen houses, old army prefab stock, gray and stout, at the bottom of a valley. In ten years of wandering, I've seen plenty of communities clinging to life and independence in the so-called inhabitable areas. But I've never seen fields like these, a patchwork of impossible green spread along the river. Crops? In the open? He nods. With some ingenuity in the right plant strains, it's possible. Not that the regime wants anyone to know. They want us in domes and cities where we're easily controlled. I'm about to speak when a hum appears at the edge of my hearing and I spot flashes of metal moving purposefully among the crops. Bots. At least 50 of them, according to my data feed. Daniel gives me an apologetic look. We've dampened their signals, but this close, I thought you'd hear them. No shit. The bot hum flickers through my brain, placid and simple. It would be easy to hook my voice to their internal matrix, circumvent their programming, unravel them with the counter song. You'll never forget how to do this, the sisters told us, and they were right. Even when I was half dead and crying in pain, I could still annihilate bots. Belem shifts uneasily beneath me, sensing how angry I am. That's illegal, not to mention insane. You know that, right? I understand your reaction, but there's no rogue military AI guiding these bots. They're safe. They're tools. And without tech, we can't farm successfully out here. I want to scream and rage at him, but he's already kicked his pony into a canter and huffing his displeasure. Belem lowers his tusked head and follows. The Garden There was a bot in the Priory Garden. Everyone knew the sisters had preached tech abstinence since before the first bot rebellions, yet there it was, a basic gardening bot, small, round, its sensors glowing as it moved between the flower beds. Only Sister Thea was with me, but I felt Mother Mary's eyes on me, even so. I always did. After the first round of surgery, done to enhance our hearing and voice control, we'd been listening to sounds of every kind, learning to mimic tone and pitch precisely. Now, Sister Theo told me to listen to the bot. I closed my eyes, tuning out the wind and gulls and ocean, and there it was, the bot's song, whisper light, more shiver than sound. Sing, Sister Theo said, and I did, and the new tech in my throat and ears helped me match the bot's song. Feel it? Yes, I felt it. I felt the sound of my voice wrap around the sound of the bot, like a rope around a pole, and when I opened my eyes, the bot had changed its path. It was circling me in the grass. Good. Keep it tethered. 
but twist your song as hard as possible. A counter song. This was the most closely guarded secret of the Priory. The secret that might defeat the bots and save the world. I'd never sung one before, but now my voice vibrated through my enhanced larynx as I adjusted the song, shifting it slightly. And instead of breaking free, the bot changed its internal song in response, its hum gradually wavering, weakening as I kept twisting. Abruptly, the hum stopped. I smelled burning circuits and my mind went silent. Sister Theo smiled at me. I'd never seen her smile before, and in that moment I felt as though the world rested on my shoulders. But more than that, I felt as if I might be able to carry it. I ride into the village, ready to tear into Daniel, ready to tell him I'll sing every one of his illegal bots into oblivion, but what I see stops me dead. Children. There are twelve of them, aged maybe eight to fifteen. Post-war kids, grown up in a different world than mine, free of war, though not of hardship, and they seem fearless even though I'm an armed stranger. They sneak glances at me while staring at Belem, crowding closer when I get off his back at the water trough next to Daniel's pony, and they bombard me with questions. Is he a dinosaur? A girl with beaded braids asks with a cacophony briefly subsides. I call him a pig lizard. His name's Belem. Last time I was surrounded by kids, I was a child myself in the priory. Were we this young? I wonder. Was I? Meanwhile, Daniel's talking to a small crowd of adults, all of them eyeing me with either fear or hostility, or both. One of the women comes over, shoes away the kids, sticks a hand out, and gives her name as Clemency. Daniel shouldn't have brought you, she says without preamble, giving me a sharp blue gaze. He's too trusting. So am I, it seems. I slip the saddle off Belem's back, setting it down. What's being done about the train? We're watching it. Not that it concerns you. She nods at Belem, grabs a med kit from her rucksack. Where'd you get the splice beast? I think of the four soldiers outside a bar who tried to bring me back to Central Command right after the war. I think of Belem in his fancy army tack, watching them die, snorting when I swung up on his back for the first time. Want him in a game of poker? She snorts and pats Belem's scaly muzzle. Right. Anyway, he's a beauty. I'd say old stock rhino, horse, and a splash of lizard DNA. You a breeder? Crouching down, she applies a row of auto-stitches and a healing patch to Belem's leg with practiced movements. Biotechnician. Worked on the first generation of splice beasts, back when everyone was clamoring for alternatives to sick horses and 
bought vehicles, gone rogue. You gave up that career to traipse around here in the wild? A shrug. I knew Daniel during the war. He's persuasive. Always had a knack for pulling people in. She runs her fingers through Belem's scraggly mane. And what's a singer doing here? Thought you all died in the war or were purged right after. Thought you all died in the war or were purged right after. Purged. The word still burns. Just riding through, heading for the coast. Coast is weeks away. Even on a fancy beast like this, that sharp blue gaze again and an even sharper smile. Faster if you take that train, I guess. I'm not in a hurry. She looks as if she's about to speak, but instead she snaps her med kit shut and stalks off, and the kids gather round me again. Are you really a singer? She can't be. There's no singers anymore. Why? Because they killed all the bots in the war, then they went crazy and died. That true? The girl with the braids asks, reaching out to pat Belem's dusty flank. Something like that. Can you sing for us? A boy asks, gives me A boy asks, giving me a pleading look. No, she'll kill us. Singers only kill bots, dummy. It's the girl with the braids again, and when she turns, hair swinging down her shoulders, I see a spidery trace of tech around her ears. Looking around, I realize every child is marked the same way, the metal tendrils of the interface hidden beneath their hair and collars. And just like that, I'm back at the Priory waking up in the medical wing with the sisters doling out prayers and painkillers. I'm back at the front, singing death to bots. I'm back on the train, being taken to camp after the war. Purged. I look up and see Daniel watching me. It's not what you think, Nisha. But it is. The dorm. Victor was singing in the boys' dorm, long after lights out. It was one of his own songs, and any other night I would have laughed and traded lines and verses with him, singing through the walls. Not that night. We were back from a week of weapons training in our first trial mission, singing in a bombed-out town, watching a group of soldiers burn the captured bots while our song held them immobile for the kill. Our dorm looked hollow. Eight beds had been empty since the final round of surgery. Expected fall-off, the doctors called it, and the sisters had stripped those beds of sheets and blankets, leaving only skeletal metal frames. "'You'll be tried and tested,' Mother Mary had said, I knew what that meant now. Awake in my cot, listening to Victor, I still smelled the smoke from the burning bots in my hair, even though I'd scrubbed for an hour in the bathhouse. 
I was clean, but I was no longer untouched. Dinner is a spicy stew of vegetables and mycoprotein, and after the tables in the eating hall have been cleared, after I've turned down a third glass of homemade wine, I sing with the kids while the grown-ups hang back, watching and listening. The anger I felt after seeing the bots is all but gone. I've watched these people go about the business of living their normal lives, of chores and work and family, and I doubt I've got the right to judge or question them. How long since I was anything near this normal? How long since I sang like this? Not for bots or for myself, but with people. I've chosen a song I wrote in the Priory, before I knew why I was there, a song about birds, oceans, stars. After I sing it once, the children join in. First, their voices follow mine, but soon they're improvising, adding words and callbacks and clapping. And for a moment, I'm a kid again, before the Priory, before the scars, singing for the joy of it. When I stop singing, they carry on, their clear voices soaring, so bold and powerful it makes me quiver. I don't even realize I'm crying until Daniel asks me to go outside. Out there, the only illumination is the waxing moon, but I walk into the night anyway, knowing it'll hurt less as long as I keep moving. Do they sing to the bots? Daniel sticks close, the bot gun on his back gleaming in the moonlight. Sometimes. To interface with them, not to kill. Your own kids, you did that to them. Look, it's nothing like what was done to you. The singers, that was a raw deal, okay? That was war. This new tech our people have developed, it's different. It's harmony. It just helps you sync with the bots, not fight them. It's even non-invasive. They can take it off if they want. Spare me the hard sell. I shrink into my leather jacket. Which kid is yours? The tall one with the braids, Naya. A smile flickers across his face, then goes out. Her mom died in the flu a while back. We walk through the village, past the paddock with Belem and the ponies, up the ridge. I sit down in the tussock grass. Daniel sits beside me. It would be easy to lean on him, let the wine pull me down, share his warmth. What about the train? I ask, grasping for something solid, something here and now to hold on to. Still there. Who knows, maybe they aren't here for us. Maybe they are inspecting the bridge. I mean, we're no threat to anyone. Rumor is, Central Command might even be lifting its ban on bot research. War's over, right? We won. So I heard. The night smells of river, dust, fields. 
Where are you going, Nisha? In the dark, this close, his voice reminds me so much of Victor's it hurts. Reminds me of sitting in the dark with him, making up songs together to stay warm. The Priory, if it's still there. Why? I try to laugh. <laughs> Good question. Thank them? Kill them? Not sure yet. I think of Mother Mary and the sisters telling us they would always take care of us, that we'd always have a home there, and old anger rises in my throat like bile. Daniel is quiet for a while, then changes the subject. He talks about crops and research and a network of free villages, exchanging resources and information, a new world growing in the cracks of Central Command's power. I close my eyes and listen. It sounds good. Almost real. Maybe this is the world, I think. Maybe there is no devil in the details. After the wars and epidemics, maybe the world can really be like this. Harmony. The war. The hold of the airship smelled of sweat and puke and metal. I sat next to Victor, listening to the battle raging below, the thud-thwack of guns, the roar of fire blasters, the hum of the bot army. Six singers were on that flight. The rest had been deployed elsewhere. I'd never see them again. When the hatch opened, I stood paralyzed, voice stuck in my throat. Then Victor hollered at me to move, and I did. We sang death to the bots that day and they kneeled, swerved, fell. Five years later, when the war ended, only Victor and I were still alive of those six, but that day, we were invincible. We were Mother Mary's angels saving the world. I must have fallen asleep because the gunshot wakes me up. It's dawn. I'm on the ground looking for my rifle, until I remember it's still in the eating hall. Daniel's bot gun is there, and I grab it instead, but there's no one to shoot, just the sound of hooves. Daniel! He's still asleep. His head... No. Blood. Bone. Brains. Move, Nisha. But I can't. I'm flat on my belly in the tussock grass with Daniel dead beside me. I smell fire. Somewhere, children are screaming and Belem is roaring. Daniel's gun feels awkward in my hands and I have to pat down his blood-soaked pockets for ammo, stuffing the cartridges into my jacket before I move. The children. They're below in the village being forced into a truck by armed soldiers. I see no other adults anywhere but the hall is on fire, flames leaping through the windows. Belem bellows for me again, banging against the walls of a second truck parked beside the first. But I can't help him, or anyone. I can only hide as the trucks take off, heading away from me, toward the train tracks. When the trucks are gone, I scramble down the slope and run toward the hall, even though I know it's too late. 
I smell burning flesh and accelerant on the hot breeze, and it's like a nightmare with me, running from house to house, finding them all empty. Why am I surprised? I've seen it before. Homes torched, people killed to prove that no one can survive without the blessing of central command. Cold steel pushes into the nape of my neck. Don't move. Clemency. She takes my rifle. Turn around. I do. Her face is streaked with soot, but she's smiling. Told the commander there was a singer, but she didn't believe me. Maybe I'll get to keep your beastie as a bonus. Where are you taking the kids? She readies a pair of slip-on cuffs. Same place you're going. Our new research facility on the coast. You shot Daniel. Something ripples across her face. I can't tell if it's regret. Daniel was stupid. All this, bots, kids. It needs to be supervised, controlled. I've practiced it so many times. Shrugging the gun out of the holster inside my sleeve. Sliding it into my hand, firing. One smooth movement. The bullet hits clemency between the eyes. Victor's voice in my head. Move, Nisha. The paddock fence is broken, and all the ponies gone except one. It's tied up beside a water trough, saddled and ready, probably for Clemency's getaway. I mount up and follow the trail of dust left by the trucks, while the village burns behind me. The Song Victor leaned on me in the dark as the train carried us away from the peace celebrations, the parades, the speeches, toward the camp where we were to be reevaluated, reassigned, purged. We'd heard enough talk, heard enough people call us tech flesh abominations to know what it meant. Some rumors said sisters from the Priory had tried to get access to us but that had been denied by direct order of Central Command. It hardly mattered anymore. They can't undo what they did to us, I said to Victor, so they'll kill us for being what they made us. Victor leaned closer. His words touched my cheek. I have a new song, Nisha, just for you and me, and this one is about freedom. Central Command's train is a pre-war relic, all steel and dirt, refitted with solar panels. I count seven cars, three without windows for cattle or cargo, or prisoners, my memories whisper. Watching from the ridge above, I see Belem being led out of a truck, snout-bound, legs hobbled, but the children must already be on the train. There are twenty soldiers, armed with rifles and stun guns. One is wielding a bot remote, guiding the village's farm bots into a train car, keeping them in an orderly formation. The truck I saw the kids get into is empty, and a soldier is waiting to drive it up a ramp, into the last train car. 
There's a loud bellow, followed by shouting. And I'd laugh if I could, because Belem has snapped the ropes around his neck and legs and is slamming into people and metal like a one-beast wrecking crew. They were ready for kids and bots, I think grimly, settling into position with Daniel's gun, but they didn't expect a valuable pig lizard or a live singer. Breathing slow, I listened for the hum of the farm bots, for the breaths and heartbeats of the soldiers. All those soldiers. I know I should cut my losses, live to fight another day, but whatever I am, whatever they made me, whatever I've become since, I can't leave Belem or the kids. Taking aim, I steady the bot gun, grasping the molded grip and trigger Daniel installed to cover the old interface where the weapon was ripped off a bot's limb. I shiver. Just a tool. I pull the trigger, and the all-too-familiar blast jars my senses, but the power and accuracy of the weapon make up for any discomfort. One soldier hit. Reload. Fire. Repeat. Now I'm singing to the bots, a small song that wraps itself around the hum of their internal processors, making them move. The soldiers scatter as the bots speed up, clanging together, spinning around. I fire again, taking care not to hit Belem, who is tossing soldiers around, trampling them. Next, I twist my song, activating the farming implements the bots are equipped with, rakes, cutters, tillers, while Belem stampedes through the soldiers who are trying to take aim at him and me. The surviving soldiers scurry inside the train for shelter. Fifteen soldiers remain in the grass, dead or incapacitated. Belem is banging on the train and the trucks, mangling the metal with his tusks. Blood covers his muzzle, but I don't know if it's his. Belem! I run down the slope toward him at the back of the train, hoping the angle makes it harder for anyone to hit me. No one fires, but I hear shouting, and I know I'm almost out of time. Belem calms when I touch him, and so do I. I stop singing, letting the bots go. Leaning on Belem, I let the sounds around me fall away until I only hear what's inside the train. Footsteps, heartbeats, breaths, voices. Blood stings my eyes. Maybe it's my own, maybe it's Daniel's. It doesn't matter now. Eight adults in one car, twelve kids in the other. Their heartbeats easy to distinguish. I start singing again, but this is not a song for bots. This is Victor's last song, the one he taught me on the train to the camp. Before we killed the guards and the engineer, before the train careened off the rails into a gully before I had to leave his mangled body in the wreckage, before he died. Every life sings, Mother Mary told us, and she was right. Every heart hums, too, just like every bot. All singers knew it, but none of us ever thought to sing a countersong to take a human life.
None except Victor. Victor's song set me free ten years ago, and now, listening to the heartbeats of the soldiers, I sing it. It's low and deep, vibrating in my throat, in my enhanced larynx, in the air, wrapping itself around those eight hearts, twisting, squeezing. It's a difficult song to hear, difficult to sing, harder still to hold that tone long enough, twist it hard enough, that each heart stops. I hear screaming and gunfire inside the train, and my song wavers as I wonder if the kids are dying because of me. Then I hear them, the children, singing with me, singing Victor's song. But their song is not like mine. It's stronger and stranger, a torrent of voices and bot-amplified noise, and they are glorying in the power of it. Their voices are so strong, I feel my own heart slow and stutter, and then I black out. Singer lady? I see twelve faces above me, snotty, tear-streaked, bleeding. I don't hear any soldiers. I don't hear anything except Belem snuffling and the children's voices, fear and anger mingling. They killed everyone, a boy says. They set a fire and clemency said they... I struggle to my feet. Where's my dad? Naya asks. I don't answer, but she looks at the bot gun in my hand and her face goes hard. We sang like you and they died. Does that mean we're singers too? Does it? I stare at the pillar of smoke darkening the morning sky, thinking of other songs I'd rather have taught them. But beyond the ridge, the village and everything that might have been for them and me is burning. Victor, or maybe Daniel, whispers in my ear, Move, Nisha. The kids crowd close. They're neither clean nor untouched, but then neither am I. No one ever is. I grab my bot gun, pat my pockets for ammo, make sure the gun is in my sleeve. I know a place, I say, looking at the truck, its solar panels spread wide in the morning sunlight. It's far, but we'll go there, together. Last time I saw Mother Mary, she was standing in the highest window of the priory while the army took us away. In my mind, she's been standing there ever since, waiting for us, for me, to return. And if I make it back, will she remember me? Will I embrace her? Or will I sing for her until she cries and her heart bursts? I don't know yet, but I'll figure it out when we get there. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And there you go. Big thank you to Maria Haskins. Maria, thank you so much indeed. Yes, thank you. And Summer, it's always a pleasure. Always a pleasure to have you on the show. So, now, I'm going to... Well, yes, it's... <laughs> So I'm stuttering all over you. I've got our very own Amy H. Sturgis, but I want to just, I'll mention something after you listened to Amy H. Sturgis's little article. Ames! Hello, my friends. It's time for another look back into genre history. I hope that you are safe and well and enjoying the new year. And I hope that you are ready for a couple of different things today as I talk about genre history. I have a couple of separate sections here in today's segment. And the first, I want to acknowledge the passing of a giant. Science fiction has lost quite a few important community members in recent days, and I want to be sure this one does not go unremarked, this loss. And that is the death of Douglas Trumbull. And the fact is, if you are interested in any way in science fiction cinema, then you have no doubt consumed and been inspired by Douglas Trumbull's work. Uh, Trumbull died on February 7th, 2022. And here I want to quote from Variety from the essay by Carmel Dagan, the the obituary, if you will. Douglas Trumbull, who pioneered visual effects on 2001, Blade Runner, and Close Encounters, dies at 79. Dagan writes, quote, visual effects pioneer Douglas Trumbull, one of the masterminds behind the visual effects on some of the most visually audacious science fiction films of all time, including 2001 A Space Odyssey, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and Blade Runner Died Monday. Trumbull also oversaw the visual effects on Silent Running, The Andromeda Strain, and Star Trek The Motion Picture, and he directed eco-science fiction film Silent Running and Natalie Wood starring Brainstorm, end quote. In fact, Trumbull was a director, a special effects pioneer, an inventor, and he was innovating up until the end. In fact, his company, Ride Film Corporation, merged with IMAX and helped develop the plan to make IMAX public. He won the President's Award from the American Society of Cinematographers. At the Visual Effects Society Awards, he won Lifetime Membership and then the George Melier Award 
honoring those who made significant pioneering contributions to special effects. He was also named a fellow in 2014 of the Visual Effects Society. In 2012, he also won the Academy's George E. Sawyer Award, which is a special Oscar presented to, and I quote, an individual in the motion picture industry whose technological contributions have brought credit to the industry, end quote. I'm pretty sure that for a lot of you, if I mention 2001 or Blade Runner or Close Encounters, you immediately have visuals in your head. You immediately see something that Douglas Trumbull gave you, made possible. And that has become part of the visual language of science fiction, if you will. But I also want to point out in particular that without him, we might not have the thriving Star Trek universe that we have today. There's a great interview that I would recommend. It is on the trekmovie.com website, and it is interview visual effects pioneer Douglas Trumbull on how it took a miracle to complete Star Trek The Motion Picture. That is the title of this interview by Brian Dew of Douglas Trumbull. And in this interview, they talk about the fact that Paramount Pictures and director Robert Wise asked Trumbull in 1979 to come in and essentially save the day. They were having serious problems with the visual effects for Star Trek The Motion Picture, to the point that there was a very real imminent danger that they would miss the release date, that the movie simply wouldn't be done in time. And as I'm sure you can imagine at that point, this move from being a television series in reruns and an animated series to the big screen, this was a make-or-break moment for Star Trek. If that film had not come out, if that film didn't work in the cinema and then allow others to be made, we wouldn't have had Star Trek The Next Generation, much less everything else that came after. But Trumbull did agree to come in and save the day, and he raced to get the special effects done. And chances are, if you think about Star Trek The Motion Picture, you probably are thinking about those effects. The effects of, for example, lighting up the new Enterprise. That was Trumbull coming in in the 11th hour and making the magic happen. Just before I started recording today, I checked Twitter for the last time, and I was really touched to see a tweet from the current showrunner of Star Trek Picard. And it included a graphic that I presume is coming up in the new season of Star Trek Picard. It is a graphic here of a screen looks like someone in the show has called up information about a Federation ship, and the Federation ship's name is the USS Trumbull, NCC-72370. And the tweet says, in honor of the great Douglas Trumbull, thank you for taking us where no one has gone before, from Star Trek Picard. So that in and of itself says that those people who are creating Star Trek today realize the debt owed to this pioneer. So I wanted to mention 
the passing of Douglas Trumbull and encourage you to read some of the interviews and news articles about his remarkable career, his multi-decade career in science fiction and how he played a part in bringing hugely influential and inspirational science fiction works to life, to us, to our eyeballs. And now, if I may shift gears, I also want to talk about a new book and how it serves as a tribute also to someone else that we have lost. So let me back up here first and mention my colleague, David Oberhelman. He served the Oklahoma State University Libraries from 1999 to 2018 when he died. He held the position of W.P. Wood Professor of Library Service, and he authored over a hundred scholarly publications. He did numerous professional presentations. He was a member, an active member of the Mythopoeic Press, which is the publishing wing of the Mythopoeic Society. He authored, uh, co-authored, contributed to multiple books. One of those is a book that he and I co-edited together, The Intersection of Fantasy and Native America, which came out in 2009. He was particularly interested in J.R.R. Tolkien's studies, and Tolkien was a focus of many of his projects. And now, the Mythopoeic Society, through its press, is honoring him with a new book called Lore Masters and Libraries in Fantasy and Science Fiction, a Gedenkschrift for David Oberhelman. Gedenkschrift is not a word I say often, and I don't say it well, so I apologize for that, but that basically means a memorial publication. It's a collection of essays in his honor, and I think it's going to be interesting to a lot of people. One reason for that is Philip Fitzsimmons' essay about the David Oberhelman collection of science fiction, fantasy, and Tolkieniana at Oklahoma State University. You know, nothing makes me happier than the idea of having really good collections for genre study. And, of course, it makes me even happier that this one is there because of and in honor of my friend. I'm glad to see his legacy preserved this way. And so I am looking forward to that essay in particular. But again, to back up, this is about lore masters and libraries in fantasy and science fiction. And there's a lot of good stuff here. In this book, besides the essay on the collection at Oklahoma State University and another on cataloging, there's going to be a section of essays that cover multiple sources, um, works like Nicholas Burns, when you have read it, it will be destroyed, the fugitive archive in fantasy and science fiction, and Philip Fitzsimmons's Books Within Books in Fantasy and Science Fiction, You Are the Dreamer and the Dream. Several really interesting essays there. There's another section that is specifically on topics in Tolkien studies, and Tolkien studies are about to get big again, I think, <laughs> thanks to 
Amazon and the new Rings of Power series. I think there'll be a lot more people going back to Tolkien. And lastly, there's a fourth part on other individual authors and sources that will have several essays. There's an essay here on Terry Pratchett and libraries, one on Jasper Ford's book world as a meta-library, one on Eric Flint's work, and one on the television series Supernatural. So a lot of different topics of possible interest in this anthology. This anthology will be published later this month. That's February 2022. It will be published by the Mythopoeic Press. And again, it is Lore Masters and Libraries in Fantasy and Science Fiction. It's edited by Jason Fisher and Janet Brennan-Croft. And it is a Gedenkschrift for David Oberhelman. And that is brought to us from the publishing wing of the Mythopoeic Society, which is a nonprofit organization devoted to the study of mythopoeic literature, that is, myth-related literature, particularly the works of members of the informal Oxford literary circle known as the Inklings. So we're talking here about folks like J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis and their circle, but the society focuses on a lot of different subjects related to fantasy and science fiction. So a fitting group to be bringing this book about lore masters and libraries and fantasy and science fiction to life. And with that, I will bring these two separate mini-segments together to end my larger segment. And I already have plans for my next one when we get together and talk about something completely different. But until then, I wish you the best and thank you for your time and attention. I hope one or both of these little segments were of interest to you. Take care and I look forward to joining you again when we talk about a completely different topic when we get together to look back into genre history. Thank you. And there you go, Williams. Thank you, last. Thank you very much indeed. So what I want to mention is, and this is just, I think if it's an age thing or not, or I've been chatting with Ames lately of, and it's because I've got my finger off the pulse in science fiction, because I don't edit, you know, I don't go out and pick the stories in. I would go to friend Fred Heimbar that does it. So you kind of, you you do miss a lot of, I've hit that bloody microphone again. You, you miss a lot of things. And I was just saying that, Amy, though, I was kind of chatting on email that I got a, I forget who it was, but there was someone died like in the big sci-fi community. And then Amy dropped us this link from Locust Magazines. And there's just so many. And even like being on Starship Sofa, with, there's, there's some that's just knocked me sideways. Do you know what I mean? And just, to be honest, like, really upsetting. Like, I've missed it and I've missed, you know, people I've had on the show. I didn't know Mary Rosenblum died. And, and I was a huge fan of Mary's. And we used to chat about dogs and everything. And she died, like, flying out. She, she was a pilot and she flew her own planes. And she crashed. And this is just, like, I didn't know anything of this. And there's... And there's there's a number of people who's been on the Starship so far who has unfortunately passed away. And Amy says that one of her like big 
losses in the kind of sci-fi thing was a, I think I'm, is this J.W. Rinsler? And Amy said he was like, he's instrumental in her kind of knowledge of like certain things. And he wrote the making of Star Wars. And I thought, oh, because I want something, because I listen to audio books, but I, I still got me Kindle. And I like, you know, I've got all sorts of Kindle. So I was reading the the making of Star Wars by this Rinsler. Rizzler, I don't know, <laughs> but mentioned Tumble, this Douglas Tumble, Trumbull. And when I started reading this, because I'm a slow reader, it was around, you know what I mean? He's just passed away. And so I was kind of, and I'd, he was the one, or he was a, a special effects. He turned down the Star Wars gig, I think, for Close Encounters, I, I'm, if I can remember. I'm not 100% sure. And so I was kind of just, you know, who would ever, you know, Turn down a Star Wars gig, yeah, hind, hindsight kid, yeah, I'm the biggest hindsight kid, yeah, in retrospect. But I was just wondering, you know, what he was, and I was going through him, and then I'd like to say, he's just passed away. And <clears throat> we're just getting marching up to the, <laughs> the edge of that cliff where, <clears throat> you know what I mean? Like I say, we've been nearly doing this 20 years, me and Amy, you know, it's, it's getting on, and there's loads of, like... People in this world are kind of passing, you know, and like I say, it's getting close. It's 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 in Starship Sofa that like I can mention a few who've gone, you know, and you think, ah, bloody hell, you know. Even when I was kind of was editing writers that I was desperate to get on, they've gone now, you know what I mean, and you just kind of get them back. But like I say, just out of curiosity, if you are a Star Wars fan, the making of Star Wars is an unreal kind of. How it came about the book, how it, you know, how that film, the struggle. Do you know what I mean? The, the, the money scrimping fox. You know what I mean? They just didn't want to spend money. That the kind of hassle he had, you know, Lucas to to get this off the ground. They just, man, he was just like batting and bowling from all different angles to try and make it. And what's nice is, you know. You know the scenes, do you know what I mean? And now it's like, I'm into the, well, I'm kind of probably about three quarters of the way through. It's like the wrapping up certain scenes and you think, God, ah, that, that scene there and like the trouble I had with this scene, the trouble I had with that scene. And you just take it for granted, it's a fantastic film, but to, to have the ins and outs of how it actually, the complications it was made and budgets were cut and cut and cut. And I wonder, you know, we wonder what, it would have turned out like if he was given free free reign, Star Wars and New Hope, you know what, he had the kind of the budget for it. But this Trumbull, you know, he did Blade Runner. God, and I've been looking because I'm quite into these, the making of books there now, you know what I mean? I really enjoy this. And I was thinking, and I kind of find, I don't know if Amy knows a, a making of Blade Runner, I'm going to go and get the, the making of Jaws. <laughs> that was another instrumental film that I seen when I was a, a tot. Do you know what I mean? When it first came out, I wasn't 70, was it 77? So I wasn't that old, you know, when it came out. But my mum took us to the cinema. Do you know what I mean? To see it, I remember. The Haymarket in Newcastle. There we go. So, anyway, I waffle enough. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. Thank you for listening. i
running to the moon But the work is going slowly It won't get to you anytime soon Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio I wanna talk to you Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.